You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. everyone and welcome to episode 76 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate who is doing a stellar job considering she's very sick to turn up today. Yes, I'm impressed with myself for being upright. <laughs> I've had whatever that dreaded lurgy is that's been going around for about a week now and um, just, yeah, I'm sick of being sick, frankly. Yeah. Think Fair that's enough. Well, um, 10 points to returning up. Well, you know, look, here I am, fronting up in my dressing gown, just like I would if I wasn't sick. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have some, I have an interesting little uh, bit of news for you. All right. And uh, I know that you might have missed it because you're not into Instagram, are you? Not particularly, no, I have to say. Well, there was a post on Instagram. I think people were asking who their favourite uh, podcasts were. Oh. Someone was asking who your favourite podcasts were and someone replied, Children's Book Daily. So big shout out to Children's Book Daily on Instagram. And Children's Book Daily has said, I love So You Want to Be a Writer by Valerie Koo and Alison Tate. And I don't even want to be a writer. <laughs> But I adore all things literary and blogland, love their author interviews and their banter. I had dinner with Alison when she was in Queensland recently and had to admit that my podcast app in our new, new, I assume new computer or new phone was new actually, car. or new car, yes, was mm. actually stuck on So You Want to Be a Writer. It just started every time I turned on the car. <laughs> and was I was listening to her and Valerie endlessly. To the point that I kind of felt quite stabby about them. Oh, dear. Oh, no. When I finally figured out how to work my car audio, I had a two-week break from them, but I'm now back on track and loving them because I think she listened to us 25 times. Oh, no. Imagine that. Like you get in your car and turn it on and all you get is our voices every single time. But like I think I voices. personally... The same, our voice is saying the same thing. <laughs> over and over and over. <gasps> over and over. Nightmare. But big shout out to Children's Book Daily. Thanks for sharing Hello, that. Megan. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> but let's move on then to the world of uh, writing and publishing and blogging this week. Mm-hmm. One area that's sort of related is podcasting because Mumbrella recently published a post called Australia's podcasting boom has finally arrived and oh. Tim Burrows from Mumbrella has gone on about how there are so many podcasts now that are becoming really popular and people are embracing the you know podcasts because people listen to them in the car yes. like children's book daily or they get stuck yeah, when they get, and they get stuck or walking the dog or doing the laundry or that sort of thing. I have listened to so many podcasts doing the laundry. It's not funny. Uh, but I'd just like to say, since we're at episode 76, do you think that maybe we're a little bit ahead of our time? I, I'm, I just have never actually been, you know, at the forefront of a trend ever in my life, <laughs> as you would probably know, having met me many times. Um, so I'm kind of, yeah, I'm a little bit excited about this. Like we're, if we're surfing the wave, like we're on the beach and everyone else is sort of just gathering momentum. But um yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, could, I, I find it really interesting that it's um, it has taken a while to take off, but like some really big people have started doing podcasts recently. Mm. Like, I mean, look at Darren from ProBlogger. That's a fairly recent thing. And so it's mm. good to see that, um, you know, different people are um, connecting with the medium, shall we say. Yeah, that's right. In fact, there's going to be the world's, not the world's, the Southern Hemisphere's first ever podcasting summit in November. Oh, are you going? 
I am. I'm speaking at it. Of course you are. <laughs> what will you be saying, Valerie? What will you be talking about? Well, we'll find out in November, won't we? <laughs> You're it'll not be... actually sure, are you? <laughs> it'll be on the Gold Coast. And it's uh, if you want more information, it's wearepodcast.com. And I think it's the 7th and 8th of November. But, uh, yeah, it should be fun. Mm. But let's move on to another link this week. We've got 51 words you should know how to pronounce. And this is from PR Daily. Now, don't look at them so that, Alison, I'm going to give you a little bit of a test to see what you say in some of these. Um, A-E-G-I-S. Aegis? Yes, that's what they say as well. How about, I won't spell this out because I think you would say it the same way as me. Um, Archipelago. 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 You say archipelago. Yeah, I do. Yes. Archipelago. Yes, that. Yes, that's right. Some mm. people say archipelago. No. I met a woman once because the main street in Singapore, the shopping street, is called Orchard Road. Mm. And she, apart from the fact that I worked there from three years and frequented Orchard Road many times, so I mm. know how it's pronounced, she tried to convince me that it was spelt correctly, it's spelt like that, but she tried to convince me it was Orchard Road. Oh, because of the orchids in Singapore. Well, she, that's how she pronounces Orchard. Mm. Orchard. Mm. Interesting. Yes. Did you laugh or did you manage to suppress your laughter? I couldn't help myself. Do you know what I did though for years? Like it's one of those things that I think pronunciation, we've talked about this before because you were pronouncing pronunciation as pronunciation at the time, I recall. It's a funny thing because, you know, like I remember when I was about, I don't know, 17 or something, I got hold of the word decorative for some reason. Like it was, you know how you do, you have like a bit of a word crush, decorative, Mm. the word, but I was pronouncing it decorative. Oh, my goodness. I, okay. I don't even know why. I don't know where the word came from. And somebody actually had to take me aside and say, Al, <laughs> you're a goose. It's decorative. <laughs> That's better than I went into David Jones or it was Grace Brothers or whatever. And um, I went to the kitchenware department because I needed to make spaghetti. And I said, hello, I need to buy a coriander. Oh, no. <laughs> she went, you mean colander, love. Oh, <laughs> And said, yeah. no, actually, I'm after the herbs and they're in the wrong spot. <laughs> but there are lots of words and you have uh, identified that I said pronunciation when I should have said pronunciation. I'm actually just going to down out on that for the rest of my life. Yes. But yes, I did. Uh, but there's also um, mischievous because mm. people often mispronounce that mischievous. Mischievous. Yes. Mm. And also words like dilate as in, you know, your pupils dilate. Mm. But people often say dilate. Do they? Yes. That's interesting. No one who's ever had a baby says dilate. They say <laughs> dilate. And oh, it doesn't yes. mean pupils in my world ever again, but that's a whole other story. Continue. Okay, Where else? Yeah. yeah. But, you know, people also often pronounce asterisk wrong. Because uh, they, like, they pronounce it like asterisk and obelix. Yes. Which I loved. So do I. Did you love? Oh, they're so awesome. Uh, but I digress. So, yes, yes, we will put the link in the show notes and you can see whether what other words you might be mispronouncing. Yes, what a good idea. <laughs> Let's move on then to our next uh, link, which is, and I love this link. This okay. is from The Right Life. It's called, Does Your Freelance Writing Career Need to Grow Up? Oh, Four ways to tell. And I love the first one. The first one is taking edits personally because there Mm -hmm. are so many writers, and you and I used to sit next to one, (laughs) who when, you know, the the edits would come back and she would cry and moan and go, but I liked it that way. It's like it's not a personal attack on you or or the subject matter or anything like that. It's just that this person is an editor and they do know how to make it better. Mm. And just listen because the most fantastic thing about working with an editor, a good editor, is that you learn so much That's if right. you actually take their stuff on board. That's right. Do you take edits personally? Do I? Yes. No. No. No, not so anymore. No. I think for the first four and a half minutes of my writing life, I did. I don't. I don't even take edits on my fiction personally anymore. 
I don't yeah. take rejection personally. I just, you know, it's just one of those things where I, I, I don't know if it's because, I don't know, maybe my, maybe my rhinoceros thin, skin has actually become too thick. But <laughs> I, I just go, okay, whatever. And I go back and I do it again or I rethink it or I, I put that project aside and work on something else. Or I, yep. Because I think that, you know, if you want to make a living as a writer, you, you just have to produce stuff that people want to publish. Exactly. And so if somebody says to you, I need you to do this to make it better, then that's what you have to do. Yes. I think. The other one, which I love as well, number two, is thinking you can make an assignment better by writing on something else. Oh, yes. Oh, Oh, dear. We see that all the time, don't we? Yes, see that all the time. Oh, but I thought it would be better this way, but that's not what the editor agreed on. No. So don't do it. The other two, it's uh, being a real jerk in the comments, meaning when, you know, people, there are trolls and stuff like that who might comment on your articles and you take the bait and comment back. Yeah, Mm, don't do that. Don't do it. And also not showing up for work as in, you know, just because you have this flexible lifestyle doesn't necessarily mean that you sh- you need you can be flexible with your deadlines if they've actually been promised to somebody. But I like this. Yes, does your freelance writing career need to grow up? I think if you're sitting on the couch in your pyjamas thinking that that's how you're going to conduct your freelance writing mm-hmm. life, then you definitely need to grow up because I don't know any freelancer who doesn't work harder than people who go to work at you know who go to an office every day they work harder it's not easier for sure for sure but let's move on to our writing craft marketing writing craft book for the week oh what have you got for us this week i have it's called woe is i oh yes sounds great (laughs) you say that so convincingly (laughs) i feel a bit woe is i right now so you you know i'm I'm all over it what's it um so what's it about valerie tell me more (laughs) woe is i the gramophobes guide to better english in plain english by Patricia T. O'Connor. And Sounds you know what? Like your kind of book. It is. And mm. I love these kinds of books because there's, you know, it got it's got everything from there's no there there. And you know, it's whether it's there or there or there, T H E R E or T H E I R or whatever there there is. The T H E Y apostrophe R E. That's the one I think most I think it's quite interesting watching the internet, I think, because you can really see where the main problems are with oh, the, the yes. grammar of our lives. Yes. And T H E Y apostrophe R E I think is one of the biggest problems that people have. They just use it indiscriminately everywhere. I know. I don't understand. No, There's, I don't either. It also helps you with plurals, like, um, you know, what happens with words that end in O? Like, you know, bimbo is bimbos with an S. Studio, you just stick an S. Studios. Portfolio, mm. you just stick an S at the end. Portfolios. But what about heroes, tomatoes and mosquitoes? Oh, yes. goodness. They have an OES. They do have an OES. Do those, does it explain why? This that, is, I think, half the problem with English. If you could just tell people why, they would actually, you know, get on board the whole grammar train a lot more easily. But often there is no why. I <laughs> know, and no that's why. the problem with it. Like, I <laughs> I just, you know, I, I've got small children or smallish boys, you know, and I have to explain to them, you know, the reason. I have to say to them, no, you can't do that. It's got to be this. And they go, why? And mm. I go, because it just is, which yep. is like the worst parenting, you know, response ever. But it's true. It's true. Just, just learn the rules, I say. True. And all and, the exceptions. Well, yeah. And so if it's if you want to know things like the difference between, um, well, when, when you can use bring or when you can use take, when you can use um, can or when you can use may, that sort of thing, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a great little book. And does so, it have hanged and hung? That's oh. another one that's often wrong. Let us see. I don't know. No. I just always remember my mother telling me when I was about 15 years old. Yes. Cur- curtains are hung, Alison. People are hanged. Oh, well, there you go. All right. Curtains are hung. Oh. People are hanged. Remember that. It does that. have hang and hung. Mm. So let's see what it says. Getting the hang of hung. 
No, it's not true that hung is never right, which is, yes, okay. I would like to impress this on the magazine writer who describes somebody's walls as hanged with handsome black and white photographs. No. No. <laughs> no. Um, both past tenses have been around for hundreds of years, but since the 16th century, it's been customary to reserve hanged to for referring to executions and mm. to use hung for other meanings. So, okay. except at the gallows, hung is the correct past tense of hang. He hung around. They have mm. hung around. This is true whether you've hung pictures, hung loose, hung out, hung laundry, or hung up. There you oh. go. <laughs> That was lovely. Thank you for that, Valerie. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but I had now, something else. you sent me an image <laughs> and you need to explain this image and this image will need to go in the show notes so mm. that everybody can understand my pain when I opened this image. Why would you have pain when you opened this image? Because I just looked at it and went, what? What is she sending me? Oh, well, it's this awesome, hilarious new publication called Puss Week. And um, you need to go to pussweekmag.com. And uh, the thing with Puss Week, it's actually a magazine for cats. So when you go to Puss Week Mag, you have to confirm that you are a cat. And you have to click on the button that says, I confirm that I am a cat, for you to join the Puss Week meowling list. Now, this is an actual magazine and it's done by Bexie McFly, who I think follows us on Twitter and has done a couple of courses at the Australian Writers' Centre. But I have to say, this magazine is hilarious. It is actually for cats and it's a glossy magazine. You can subscribe to it online and it has um, really uh, riveting articles like Catching the Red Dot. It's easier than you think. And also... <laughs> I think you got to... You really do have to be a cat or yeah, really love a cat. have to be a cat. Don't yeah, you? Yeah, Rex is subscribed. So the tail end, does size really matter? <laughs> and also, which body type is right for your windowsill? Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. no. <laughs> Please tell me it's not true. Inside the cat cafe. What is pre-order. coffee? Pre-order. You can pre-order your copy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on sale. But I like this one. Inside the Cat Cafe, what is coffee? Should we be licking it? Mmm. Oh. It's freaking hilarious. I have just thumbed through this for the first time and I can't stop laughing. I just think it's it's this, one of the cleverest things I've ever seen in a long time. Fantastic. Well, you know what? I've obviously got a subscriber in you, Val, and that's fantastic. I don't think ProcrastiPup would be happy if I brought that into the house, so I'm going to avoid it like the plague. Okay. (laughs) For other cat lovers out there, check it out. It's seriously worthwhile. It's just too funny for words. Okay, I will move on. Please. To our writer in residence this week. Right. And who is our writer in residence this week, Valerie? It is Stephanie Clifford, and I spoke to her from uh, Brooklyn in New York. Wow. And um, Stephanie is a journalist in New York. She actually covers the crime beat at the moment. Mm -hmm. And she has uh, written a book, which is – it's got a great cover. You should see it. Um, Very, very eye-catching. And it's called Everybody Rise. And her protagonist is uh, 26. Her name is Evelyn, and she's in Manhattan. And she starts, you know, kind of falling into this Upper East Side crowd. And it's really a story about mm, social climbing and uh, what happens when you get caught up in that world. So uh, this is Stephanie's first novel, and it's a great read. So let's have a chat to Stephanie Clifford. Great. So thank you for joining us today, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be talking to you. And you're speaking to us all the way from, where are you, Stephanie? I'm in Brooklyn, New York. Awesome. Now, on a very hot day. <laughs> on a very hot day. Well, it's freezing over here in uh, Sydney, Australia. But let's get straight into your book, which is you know just launched, Everybody Rise. For those readers who haven't read your book yet, can you tell us what it's about? Yeah, it's about fitting in and figuring out who you are. It follows a 26-year-old named Evelyn 
who moves from a small town in the country to New York City. And when she gets here, she has a really hard time. She gets fired from her job. And she thinks that she has her last chance at New York um, when she gets a new job that working at a social network and begins falling in with this crowd of old money New Yorkers. So suddenly she's in these fabulous summer homes and going to regattas and parties and she begins lying to fit in and the lies start adding up really, really quickly until she gets into pretty deep trouble. Mm. Now you started as a journalist, your career as a journalist. Can Mm. we just take us back to when and why and when did you know you wanted to become a journalist and why did you, were you drawn to journalism? I was always one of those kids who was poking around in things that I probably shouldn't have been poking around <laughs> in. And at a certain point, I think I discovered that you could actually get paid for that, yeah. <laughs> which seemed delightful. Um, so I did the high school paper, I did the college paper, and it's it's long been something I'm interested in. And I'm now at the New York Times where I cover uh, courts. So you've been working as a journalist, you're covering courts. How did the idea for this book form? Like, was there a light bulb moment or have you been thinking about it for a long time and finally got round to writing it? Yeah, I started taking notes on it almost 10 years ago, actually. Really? There were, yeah, and there were a couple things that started me on it. One was I wanted to write about what it's like to come to a city and struggle. When I moved to New York, I'd, I came here, I thought I'd get a job immediately and everything would go great. And it didn't. It took me two years to get a job. I was freelancing, but I was barely paying my bills. And I felt like I I didn't read about that anywhere. All the movies were about how you reach instant success (laughs) once you move to a city. And for a lot of us, it's not like that. So I... um, I wanted... You reach instant success and you marry Mr. Big, apparently. Right, exactly. <laughs> and your friends are fabulous. Yes. Um, and it, it's really hard when you feel like you're failing, especially at a young age. Uh, so I wanted to write about that. And then I was really taken with this world of New York in 2006 and seven, when the book is set. Um, for us, it was right before the financial crisis. And there was so much money and people were spending in these crazy, lavish ways and taking private planes everywhere and <laughs> ordering bottle service at clubs. And it seemed like such a weird moment in the culture that I really wanted to capture that. Mm. And so did you always want to write fiction, though? Or, you know, or was there a point where you thought, you know, because journalism is so different. It's nonfiction and it's it's a very different beast. Did you always know you were going to do both or was there a point where you thought, I'm going to give this a go? I didn't. I, I had that moment where I thought, I'm going to give this a go. And I, I, liter- I remember where I was and I opened my laptop and I started writing at the beginning of, of what was a very different story. But uh I had I have always loved fiction. I've loved fiction sort of in this genre where it's a great tale but also hopefully says something a little bit more about uh society. And I wanted to give it a shot and I thought you know, I it was such a long shot. I did it sort of in secret for year after year after year not knowing if it would go anywhere. Yeah. But I thought at least I want to finish this and see what happens. So you say that there was, you know, you remember where you were. What was that turning point? What made you decide, I'm going to write fiction now? I was out at a friend's house and I had my laptop with me. I was out at her summer house and I had been memorizing poetry. Okay. (laughs) Sort of a thing to do. Uh And I had just memorized um, Proof Rock by Elliot. And I just found it so inspirational. And I was like, I, something about it made me think, well, I have something to say too. Maybe I should try this. Uh, and so that was, that was, I flipped it, opened the laptop and started writing. And that led to all of this. So you started taking notes 10 years ago. When did you actually decide, I'm going to put down a first draft? Uh, I had done it in bits and pieces but it was, I'd write for, you know, an hour every three weeks or something, just getting nowhere. And so about five years ago, I realized that in order to get this thing to the finish line, I had to structure it very aggressively. Um, and so with my job, it becomes really unpredictable after about 8 a.m. because sources are calling, news is breaking, you're running off to cover something. Mm. But between six and eight in the morning, it's almost always quiet. And so I began writing 
in that period. And I'd get up every day at six and um, make myself sit there until eight, even if nothing was coming. (laughs) Uh, And that helped me get in the rhythm of writing. And it took sort of the choice out of it where I had to get up every day and sit there no matter how tired I was. And that got me to a draft. Wow. So it was a book that was written between 6 and 8 a.m. <laughs> there wasn't yes. – did you at any point take time off to decide, you know, I'm going to spend a month now on it? Or did you continue working through that time? I didn't. I continued working and part of that was practical. I needed a salary. Mm. But part of that was also that it weirdly took the pressure off if nobody knew I was making this big bet and if I, if I wasn't <laughs> – taking time off to do it. It almost gave me more freedom and more quiet space to work on it. Mm. So then tell us what happened. You've done your first draft. Did you, you know, do many drafts and then send it to a publisher? How did it, how did it get published? Uh, I finished a first draft and I wanted a professional editor to look at it and tell me whether I should forget this or keep going. Um, And I knew it was far, far away from being ready to submit to uh, actual publishers. So I found a freelance editor who went through it and said, yeah, this is really good, but there were also some fiction basics that I didn't even think about. Like I kept changing point of view, mm-hmm. which, you know, when you're writing fiction for a first, for the first time, she, she um, said, if you're doing that, it has to be deliberate and there has to be a reason for it. You can't just randomly switch from an omniscient narrator to, you know, one of the characters. Uh, So that was really helpful. And that gave me enough for like another year's worth of revisions. Wow. (laughs) Um, And then once that was done, I had a couple of friends read it, give me their feedback. Finally, I sent it to agents. Um, and then the agent read it. We kind of sharpened it a little more and then set it, sent it to publishers. Great. So when you were writing it, had, are you the sort of person who knew what was going to happen at the end or, or knew what was the key points of your plot? Or did you just let it flow out and see what happens? <laughs> I let it flow. And I think... For writing this novel, it, it was a good way to go because I, I had this very clear idea of Evelyn, the protagonist in my head, but I had no idea what she would do once she got into this world, how badly she would want to be a part of it, um, what she would do in order to stay there. Uh, I knew that I wanted to pull the bottom out from under her with regard to her family support. Her father, uh, who's a lawyer, gets indicted. Her mom puts all this pressure on her to be a part of the social scene. So that... Um, that part of it I always knew was there, but I didn't know what would happen or where that would go. Mm. What research did you do for the book, or was it just your life around you? No, I mean, I'm in Brooklyn. I cover courts, which is <laughs> gangs and wrongful convictions, and it, it's a very, very different world. Uh, and this is not my world. I've had a little bit of exposure to it here and there, but um, I reported it out, a lot of it. So some of that was primary research, reading etiquette books, reading memoirs, mm. uh, reading newspaper articles about um, about these parties. And then some of it was talking to people who are part of this world to understand what they value and how they speak. Uh, and some of it was when I found myself at... Um, some of these events, I would pay careful attention. So one of the strange gigs I had when I was freelancing and barely (laughs) staying afloat in New York uh, was I got a job covering fashion shows for like a supplement to a fashion week um, publication. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, $30 a day. But I went and it was so interesting to me where people sat and who got to go backstage and how everybody was circulating that I began taking notes on that. Um, mm. So those those kind of early struggles and weird jobs can actually lead, <laughs> lead to useful things down the line. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned you cover the courts now, and I understand you have previously covered business. Is that right? Mm-hmm. right. Now, 
I was interviewing a business journalist, Jill Margot, who recently wrote a biography of um, Australia's richest man, uh, sometimes second richest, depending on the day. And one of the things she said to me was she actually believes that business journalism is one of the hidden secrets, one of the uncovered gems, in a sense, that people underrate in that there's so much drama and soap opera in the world of business that it's actually far more interesting than anything you could make up. Um, do you, what are your thoughts on covering the business beat, so to speak? Is it something you enjoyed? I did, and I, I found it – I have a similar reaction where I think people – tend to frown on it and they think it's just sort of reporting that the stock market went up and the stock market went down and it's instead it's money and it's power and a power plays and so when you're doing stories on what happened inside a, a company as one CEO got ousted and his you know the junior executive set up his ouster it's like Machiavellian and so <laughs> interesting and fun and there's also some there's a good um there's a good part to the rigor around it. You, you can't get numbers wrong. Mm. People can lie to you, but you can check uh, you can check it against how their financials are. So there's there's a lot less nonsense than there is in some other worlds like politics, mm. uh, which I found really interesting. Mm-hmm. And so when you are now you're doing courts and you, it sounds like you're doing news in mm-hmm. courts, and which is very. Um, deadline driven you have to file that day you have to research very very quickly get the story out there how did you switch hats from you know such a long form thing as a novel (laughs) compared to I've got to write 500 words on this by lunchtime you know did you have to do anything to switch gears to get yourself into that space of I'm writing a long piece of fiction and I don't have to finish in three hours yeah, I did. And initially, when I started doing those morning writing sessions, I would set word count goals as though mm. it were almost a daily uh, newspaper. And oh. I found that really didn't work because then I felt this enormous pressure that if I didn't reach 2,000 words in the two hours, my day had been ruined. And it <laughs> didn't give me room to sort of think about how a character would act or daydream about what she might do. Um, So I actually had to take out that sort of daily production pressure in order to have the room to write creatively. Yes. So this book has been with you or in your brain for 10 years, but now that it's out, (laughs) what do you think about, you know, is is it weird not to have it with you anymore in a sense? There is a funny... Uh, nostalgia or sort of sense of missing the characters because I, especially Evelyn and her two old friends, Preston and Charlotte, from their, they've been friends since high school and Evelyn sort of betrays them and they pull her back and so I keep thinking about those three and what they're up to <laughs> and what um, <laughs> what conversations they might be having now. You do miss it because it's, it's a part of you and it's in your head for so long. Mm, does that mean you're already thinking about the sequel? I am. I'm thinking about one. I think there's probably more to do with um, with Preston and Charlotte. But I also am so interested in the criminal justice world now mm. uh, that I'm also thinking of doing something set there. Oh, you mean a fictional piece set there? Mm-hmm. Yep. Ah, oh, okay. And what fascinates you about the criminal justice world? I mean, um, I, and I encourage uh, listeners to go to your website and, and read some of your pieces, especially the one about the man who was wrongfully convicted, um, yeah. your piece on him. Uh, what fascinates you about the criminal justice world? Again, it's one of those underrated news beats where it's certainly not glamorous and it's not like the top people always want to cover courts. Um, But I think it's so fascinating because you get to see people's lives in these really raw moments and often people are crying or their family members are in tears. You get these interesting pictures of uh, defendants' lives, where they came from, how they got into crime, um, you know, the circumstances of lives that otherwise you might not cross paths with. So it's it's just story after story after story. And honestly, if, if writers out there are um, having writer's block and can't come up with ideas, just like spend a couple days in court and you, you will, you'll have nothing but 
tales. <laughs> so you're covering courts now. You've previously covered business. You've also written about fashion. Um, you've written about pets. Um, what, if you could have your choice of any beat next, what would that be and why? Yeah, I'm so, I just started the courts beat about a year ago, and it's so much fun that I don't want to leave. I get to go hang out at the courthouse every day, and you get to argue with lawyers, which is always fun. <laughs> um, so that one, I'm having too much fun to to want to move on sure. right now. Back to your book then. Can you tell me what was the most challenging thing about writing it? There's a point when Evelyn gets very deep into this world and she becomes arguably unlikable. She starts being harsh with her family. She's mean to her old friends. Uh, And that was hard to write because I loved her all along. I was always rooting for her. And to see her acting so badly was almost upsetting to me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) even though I was writing it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And trying to explain why she would be so attracted to something you know we've all not necessarily this world but we've all fallen in with something that's not great for us Mm -hmm. we've all tried to be someone we're not so trying to write that um to write her acting in this rather devilish way when I still loved her and wanted her to behave was hard now, pe- many people might think, okay, she's a journalist. She has some, you know, kind of writing skill, base level of writing skill at least. Did you ever doubt yourself that this was going to make it? Oh, yeah, all the time. Tell us a bit about that, like, and how did you get over those doubts? I, uh, part of it was not telling people about it because I knew that if people were asking, how's the book going, you know, you you feel like... Uh, I just didn't want the pressure of having to answer to people or of announcing that I was a, a novelist when I thought I had no business being one. So you don't tell um, no one? No, I mean, I told my husband. Yeah, um, <laughs> After a couple of years, I told my parents, but I really, like, I really kept it under wraps. Wow. Uh, uh, and another, there's a wonderful little book called... Um, I think it's The Art of Writing. It's by Dinty W. Moore. And it's just thoughts on sort of peaceful writing and how to quiet your brain around all the anxieties. And when I was in, uh, when I was having anxious moments, I would read something from that. Mm-hmm. And it's all of these writers just saying, you know, just just get the words on the page and the rest of it is not your business. Mm-hmm. So that was a helpful thing. And do you feel more confident now? I do. Yeah, now now that the book is out, it's really neat to hear readers talk about it. Mm. Uh because you made up these characters and this world and to hear readers respond to it and say I liked when Preston did this, you know, I was angry when Charlotte did that is so cool because mm. it it feels like you've actually created something that's resonating. So what's the future for you? Do you want to run your journalism and fiction writing in parallel and still, you know, write it from six till eight every morning? Or or do, do you think you'll, you know, move into one more than the other? I'm trying to figure it out. I loved fiction writing much more than I even expected to. I found it, it's often hard and often I was in tears because something wasn't working or I had lost confidence. But when it does work, it's it's so delightful. Um and so I, I don't, I want to write a second book and I'm starting work on that now. Um, but I also love journalism because it keeps mm. you in the real world. Uh, it, I, I don't, I, I wish I knew. <laughs> I love them both for now. <laughs> what do you enjoy most about writing fiction? What's the feeling or, or what do you love about it? Well, I would write, um, when I was writing in the mornings, even when I was in a really small apartment, I would never write in the same physical space as I did the New York Times work in. Mm. Uh, so I would actually turn around my chair and put like a plant in the window so that it looked different and felt <sighs> different. Um, and it it felt peaceful and it felt flowing, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Like at, at the times when the words were coming and I was just sort of describing what I saw Evelyn doing, uh, it, it felt really wonderful. 
And what do you enjoy most about journalism? What's the thing that, you know, really makes you happy about journalism? It's such a rush, especially when you're on a tough deadline and you're trying to get a competitive story in. Um, you just get this high because you're working so hard in order to get the story in by four o'clock or five o'clock or whatever it is. And when you do it, it just feels like you've leapt over a bunch of hurdles uh, or you know, run a track race or whatever. Um, you get that same almost sport high from it. And um, there's much discussion these days about having an author platform, particularly for a first-time author or novelist. Um, is that something that you are aware of? Is that something that your publishers maybe mentioned to you? Or, you know, what are your thoughts on an author platform? They, I think they were happy that I'm on Twitter, which I am at Steph Cliff. Um, and I'm on Facebook a tiny bit more. Like, they wanted me to be a little more active on Facebook, so I'm trying to be. Um, but I also think there are so many people out there with personal brands that <laughs> I'm... <laughs> I'm not sure what um, – I, I think it helps connect with readers, uh, but I, I don't know how important it is. I'm sure. Certainly so, not a star. star so. <laughs> I know this is a bit off topic, but I can't resist. Uh, I know that you have met Jackson Galaxy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who listeners may know he is the – you know, unusual looking guy from My Cat from Hell, because you have two cats. Can you please tell us about your experience with Jackson Galaxy? Um, he's like my favorite celebrity. I was dying when I met him. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yes. It was so exciting. Why is he your uh, favorite celebrity? I love that show, and he's like so gentle with cats. And uh, so that was for a story I was doing for The Times on trying to get your cat to walk on a leash, which... <laughs> Like it's so it was so absurd, and of course my cat wanted nothing to do with it, and so I had Jackson Galaxy come in to see if he could work his magic, and he did. And my cat now loves walking on a leash. Um, Jackson is so wonder he's really authentic. Like I I wondered if he was sort of putting on a show for the show, and yeah. he's not. He he was so authentic. He loved the cat. We were actually walking the cat in the woods on a sort of cold October day and Jackson took off his jacket and wrapped the cat in it when he saw oh. that the cat was old. <laughs> like, he's oh. so nice. <laughs> so, do you regularly walk your cat on a leash now? <laughs> um, I, my husband is really embarrassed by it. <laughs> when he, when he's on vacation, I do. Um, <laughs> oh my like, goodness. But it's so, it's so weird. And, you know, this is Brooklyn where, like, you could walk a human on a leash and nobody would bat an eye, but people are still like, what? <laughs> really? So people stare at you when you walk your cat on a oh, leash? Yeah. People are like, what are you doing? <laughs> I guess that's one of the fantastic things about journalism is you actually, you actually have this excuse to contact your heroes and to yeah. go through experiences that normal people wouldn't be able to because they don't have an excuse. No, completely. It was it was like it was so exciting meeting yes. Jackson Galaxy now you've previously worked at Inc and now you work at the New York Times um, and they're such uh, iconic mastheads in a sense um, and presumably when you were much younger you 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 thought that as well because they really are iconic mastheads does the reality of working there match with um, you know your initial perception you know, I think every place you work um, becomes a workplace after a couple of weeks. But the other reporters at the Times are just incredible. And, you you know, you work with people who broke these huge political scandal stories and who did these amazing investigative pieces. So you can learn so much from them. And that's really thrilling. Yeah. And um, uh, finally, what's your advice for aspiring writers who, you know, might have a day job, like you had a day job, and who are secretly writing from six till eight in the morning as well and not telling anyone, who hope to get published like you are one day? I think the main thing, and it's simple and it may sound stupid, but is to finish it. There are so many excuses that we have and so many people who've put aside creative projects for many, many reasons. Um, but there is a way to fit it into your daily life and to keep going with it. And even if it takes years and years, as it did for me, 
uh, you can get there. And I, you know, even if nothing happens after that, I think finishing a novel is a pretty amazing thing. And you'll always have that um, to to fall back on. Mm, wonderful. All right. Um, well, on, on that on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Steph. Thank you. This was great. So there you go, Stephanie Clifford. Fantastic. I think her book sounds really, really interesting. She's been described as a modern Edith Wharton or Jane Austen, which mm. I think is big raps. Yeah, and you should definitely check out her website as well, which is stephanieclifford.net, and look at some of the stories, she's act- the feature stories that she's mm. written uh, because they're, they're well worth a read as well. You know, some really good journalism there. Right. But let's move on to our app pick for the week. It's a website called oneword.com and this Mm -hmm. is great for people who just need a little bit of a writing prompt and you go to the website and it says simple you'll see one word at the top of the following screen you have 60 seconds to write about it click go and the page will load with the cursor in place don't think just write so I'm going to press go and as I press go and have the slowest internet in the world, Uh, the word that comes up is society. So there's Mm. a box there for me to write for 60 seconds about society. And it's just a great way to free up some, you know, brain power if you need to from time Mm. to time. Good way to start um, a writing session, like just to kind of get you, because, oh, here's the thing. So this is an interesting thing. Mm. I've been, obviously, I I haven't been myself for the last week. (laughs) So my energy levels are a little down and my perspective on the world is somewhat, you know, foggy, shall we say. Yes. But one thing that I've noticed has happened a couple of times on the internet in the last week has been that somebody has put up, oh, we have, you know, we had our post regarding self-belief and self-discipline. Yes. Uh, that we spoke about last week with the podcast and, and uh, Natasha Lester's post. Yes. And several people commented that the one thing that writers need is inspiration. Mm. You can't possibly start writing without inspiration. Mm. And because of the frame of mind I was in, I, I was a bit cross about that like part of me and and had I had more energy I would have responded but I didn't because I have to say that if you're sitting around waiting for inspiration before you write things you're never going to write anything yeah an exercise like this one that you've just given us with one word for example is a great way to get started without inspiration because it's a little exercise it's one word it's 60 seconds it gets your mind thinking and you never know that 60 second piece that you write on society might become something bigger so what i'm trying to say here is don't wait for inspiration look for it absolutely absolutely which brings us to actually our working writers tip this week and this is a question that i have for you because you're obviously you know in a woe is i kind of i know look at me i'm all woe is i aren't i (laughs) woe is i and um i'm not not getting much sympathy either valerie i just like to point that out no 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 i have oodles of sympathy for you but you know you're obviously sick and you don't have your energy up and you probably feel like crap and yet you've got to maintain a household and earn money Mm. as a writer, as a working writer. How do you – what are your things that you put in place when you're sick in order to get stuff done, especially your writing? Okay, well, so there's two things that I think that I should have done differently. One of those is to go to bed for two days right Mm. up front. I think I should have just given in in the first couple of days, I don't think it would have lasted as long as it has yes. if I had admitted defeat and gone, you know, because I'm not sick that often. So, um, you know, when I am, I try to ignore it. And that's not, I, I think we've all forgotten how to be sick. I think we're all so busy trying to ignore it and get on with things mm. that we end up getting completely felled. And I know that this flu that's been going around has been uh, quite hard for lots of people. Yes. Um, and it's been a, a good week for most people. And everybody's just like, God, this is just never happens. You know, this never happens. Well, it happens. Yeah. Um, so I think I probably should have done that. But instead, I didn't do that. Instead, what I did was I fronted up every day and I did all the things that needed to be done because deadlines are great motivators. Mm-hmm. So if you have deadlines, um, I think what you have to do is enough to keep everything ticking over. So what I was doing was I would sort of have a little lie down and then I would get up and I would send the emails, check things that needed to be checked, keep things ticking over enough so that I could then go and have another little rest again. Um, So I think, but when you're working from home like that, um, 
it's very, very difficult to rest and relax. You're always worried yeah. about what you should be doing. And admittedly, you only have to go as far as your desk. So it's not as difficult as if you had to actually get up, get dressed, get on a train, go to the city, you yes. know, come back. Um, so I, I do concede that. Um, so I think the thing to do when you are ill is just to try and keep one eye on your on your timeline and keep things ticking over as much as you can so that once your energy levels are back, you can get it, get into it, you know, pretty hardcore. Yeah. What about you? What do you do? Well, I think as you say, because you don't have to get on a train and go into work, you think I'll just sit up in bed and Mm. I'll, you know, tap Mm. away. And I am often found doing that even Mm. when I'm sick. And I I guess I just, I do do it just to keep on top of things, but I get to a point where it's like, oh my God, I can't do this anymore. And I will just go to sleep or I'll just watch, you know, binge watch something while um, having a box of tissues by my side and mm. hoping I'm not going to chuck or whatever. So mm. it, it, I, I'm not one to totally sign out. I just can't seem to let myself do that. I'll do a minimal amount yeah. and then attempt to rest and get over it as much as I can. I will admit, though, I'm a big fan of Codrill, the mm. strong version, and that gets me through a lot. Um, yes. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not ne- necessarily, oh, you have to get better the natural way. I do take drugs. Mm. Oh, yes. Mm. Yes. Essential. But you do, I, I guess the other thing to remember too is that you do need to look after yourself. Like it's, um, yes, you're working from home, um, but you are sick. And yes. it is important um, and that's something I really realised last week. I was just like, I got to Friday when I had, you know, was at the doctor's with the bronchiolitis and all the other infections that had come because I hadn't looked after myself better in those first couple of days. Mm. And I think that, you know, it's important to recognise that sometimes you just got to go with it and lie down. Okay. Well, mm. we're wishing you lots of healing vibes, Al. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Thank you. <laughs> so, and just so that you can... Go get back to bed. I think it's time to wrap up the podcast. Oh, okay. Yes. All right. Um, Thanks for listening to me warble and croak (laughs) on today. It's been lovely. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, email us, podcast at writerscentre.com.au. And, of course, you can look up the show notes where we have all of the links to the useful resources and you can find them at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast. So, Al, where do we find you online? Uh, you'll find me at alisontate.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate. And I would actually really like it, and I know this sounds a little bit funny, but um, I'm so close to 5,000 Twitter followers, and I know that, that that shouldn't matter, but it's just this little numbers thing that I've got in my head, and I'm just wondering if anybody out there isn't following me on Twitter, please come along and say hello to me because I'd really like to crack that 5,000 if possible. At and Al also- Tate. At Al Tate, A L T A I T. And you'll also find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. Wonderful. And what about you, Valerie? Where will we find you? Go follow Alison on Twitter. That would be awesome. You'll find me at Valerie Koo on oh, everywhere Twitter, Instagram. And also, if you're into Instagram and want to check out the Writer's Centre Instagram, you'll find that at Writer's Centre AU. But uh, that brings us to the end of our podcast. So until next week. Thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you then. Bye. This week's giveaway is Jerry Grayson's true account, Rescue Pilot Cheating the Sea, and it'll make your own life seem decidedly dull, but you can escape in the pages of his memoir. Visit writercentercomau slash win for your chance to win. Entries close Monday 14 September 2015. But if you're listening to the podcast in the future, don't worry. There will be a new book giveaway at writercentre.com.au slash win that you can check out. In the meantime, if you're looking for the show notes to this episode, go to writercentre.com.au slash podcast. <laughs>